Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Isaiah 56, and the last time we were in John chapter 9, which was really cool, uh, when we do a long book, every 10 chapters we take a break and just move to another part of scripture for just more variety. Uh, two people came forward. It was just a great portion of scripture. If you didn't get it, get it for free online. This morning, being in Isaiah 56, the message is titled, Be a Good Witness. And certainly the Israelites were going through a very difficult time. Interestingly enough, they had too much prosperity at one point. Uh, they drifted from God, a lot of debauchery. Uh, and they found themselves actually in captivity in, in Babylonia uh, because of that. You know, sometimes too much of a good thing is not good. Uh, in addition to that, then they, as through their captivity, they went through a lot of trials, and uh, it, it kind of hurt their witness in some ways. They were negatively influenced by the culture. And folks, you can see the, <laughs> the lessons today for us too. You know, God had to remind them, you're still my people. You still represent me. Be a good witness. And that's what being a good witness is about. We talk about that as Christians, is that through good times or bad, you know, we have a mandate. Um, sort of cultural Christianity says, do whatever you want, you know, throw caution to the wind. But if you actually read the Bible, it says that there are things that God expects from us. And one of those things is to be a good witness. Now, I have to confess that Isaiah is a tough book to teach. You know, it's very heavy, it's very deep, very detailed, and we're going to see a lot of things. Uh, initially, we see in Isaiah, well, the Babylonian Exodus. So if you look at this in light of the 6th uh, six, century, well, century BC, um, late or early to late, what you find is that the Jewish people, the Israelites, God was going to bless them and take them out of Babylon through Cyrus the Persian. So that's one layer that we see in, in uh, Isaiah. Another layer is that God speaks through these chapters about the Messiah coming, and that's these later chapters are heavy laden with the Messiah. So there's layers there. And then one of the last layers that we see in this scripture is a future from 2018 uh, with this millennial kingdom, this amazing place where the Lord returns and he rules righteously. No more corrupt politicians, no more ridiculous taxes. That's good news for New Jerseyans. But uh, so that's going to be an interesting as well. Now, just to let you know is that, you know, a lot of some Bible scholars disagree on some of the layers and where they fit in. But what's really important, and they all agree on this, is what's the message? What is God trying to say to his people in any dispensation, in any era? So that's the thing that we're really, I'll, I'll kind of get, get you some of the different thoughts and what they think of Isaiah, but I really want to help you to understand the main message. And it's really about being a good witness. It's a very simple message. And there's only three parts to this. So we're going to jump in. In verse 1, thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come. Now, that word can also mean deliverance, but we see the Lord always trying to deliver his people physically, but most importantly, spiritually. And my righteousness is to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold on it, 
who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. So the first out of three is, well, be a good witness. God is basically gearing his people up. You're going to be delivered from Babylon, but you still have a responsibility to these unsafe pagan people to represent me. That's very important. And again, we talk about this as Christians. Even though they were going through a a terrible trial, they still had to remember who they were. And same thing for us. We have to remember who we are in Christ. You know, when I was leaving my secular job after 25 years, um, I just always try to to be a good witness. I mean, listen, we all make mistakes. (laughs) Just because I'm the pastor doesn't mean I'm perfect. And uh, (laughs) so basically... Um, the last year, you know, I really witnessed a lot. I gave out Bibles. I mean, I did this throughout my career. Uh, but what was really cool was I didn't know it. The, the guys, as you can see in the picture, the ones that weren't working, they planned uh, to come to the church, which they did. That's on the church front lawn. Uh, and they came and supported me, and I still talk to them. You know, I still, you know, they call me about different issues, and I try to counsel them and stuff. But I really want to lead them to Christ. So, um, again, did I always do it right? The answer is no. I want to let you take comfort in that one. Um, I did fail, and there was times that I had to repent and I had to apologize to the Lord. But whether it's the Israelites or us, you know, we're called to represent Christ. And that's, that is a serious, I mean, it's like being an ambassador, the Apostle Paul says. You know, it's something that we really should want to do, and we should, on a regular basis, lead this dying, unsaved, confused world to Jesus to find the truth. Uh, God wanted his people to maintain core characteristics. If you look at some of these characteristics, justice, righteousness, keep from doing evil, not defiling the Sabbath. And let's talk about those. So A, justice and fairness. I mean, who doesn't want justice and fairness? Uh, you know, even for the unsaved, they're, they're attracted to this. As Christians, do we, and again, I know we're talking about the Israelites, but let's talk about our application. You know, are we into favoritism? Are we into nepotism? you know, wink, wink, you know, for money, or are we, do we really try to be as fair as possible with our dealings? B, righteousness. And again, the Bible tells us that our righteousness comes from Christ as believers. Um, and, you know, the, the unsaved may look at your life and see something that looks attractive to them. It's something that they may not have. You know, you're reflecting that righteousness of Christ. You're exuding it, hopefully. Uh, C, to do no evil. Listen, when you run with the world, and I ran with the world before I was saved, the world will turn on you. And, you know, you always want to keep that door open as a Christian for somebody who's in the world, gets beat up by the world, right, to come to you and say, hey, can I talk to you? And they're in distress, and they're confiding in you. So to the unsaved, to keep from evil is, again, it's an attractive quality. If you ever get a chance, he's gone to be with the Lord, Pastor Richard Wombrand, Right, The world eradicated the Nazis in World War II, which was great. But we had another threat, the communists, and they were very vehemently anti-Christian and still are today. And Romania was taken over by the communists, and they were brutal. And pastors who preached the truth from the, from the pulpit were arrested. Pastor Wombrand was in mostly solitary confinement for 14 years in a communist prison, beaten before Congress. He took his shirt off. There was whip marks all over him. They beat his feet. He couldn't stand long. You know that some of the, the, the tormentors, the communist tormentors, came to him privately when they were on the outs with the Communist Party, and they were thrown into the same prison of the people that they were tormenting. 
And it's amazing how many people this pastor led to the Lord in this prison. So they saw the light in him, even though the, their job was to beat him. When, they, when finally the others turned on them, they knew where to go for the truth and for, and for hope. Amazing story. Uh, D, keeping the Sabbath. You know, Some believe that this whole idea of the Sabbath is more of a cynic dosh, or in other words, uh, a small part representing a large part where he talks about the Sabbath a lot, and it just really represents keeping the law. But the Sabbath was important because defiling the Sabbath got the Israelites in a lot of trouble. That was one of the reasons, one of the reasons why they were taken into captivity. Um, and again, the, the, the bottom line to the first part is to remember who we are regardless of the circumstances. You know, how do we represent Christ? You know, and, and again, our lives, if we're honest, are, you know, who, who's really insulated from any problems? Or who's really completely insulated from any temptations? Every believer goes through a, a, a journey in life that has its, its peaks and its valleys, peaks and its valleys. And can we try to be somewhat consistent through those peaks and valleys? Very important. Again, but we still fail, don't we? I'll raise my hand and I'll be the first one to admit that. Continuing on, verse 3, he says... Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than the sons and daughters I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the foreigner who joins themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations." The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. So two is this promise of inclusion. If you're having a little difficulty, don't worry, because a lot of the Bible teachers um, split hairs on some of the things that are said here. But let me go through it basically and then give you really what the Lord is trying to say through all this. Um, you know, when we think of uh, eunuchs and uh, nations foreign from Israel, it's a little hard for us to completely grasp what he's saying here, but let's look at this. Deuteronomy 23 in God's law in the Old Testament prohibited full unification of the foreigner and the eunuch to Israel for various reasons, but the new covenant was going to change that. Okay? And when you look at, you know, people try to make the, um, the connection to the United States, and it's, it's kind of really hard to do that uh, because the Israelites were a nation that supposedly, and of course not everybody did, but in general the nation was known for its worship and its service to God. You, we might have started out in, in, you know, we have so many groups of people in this country. Um, I, I'm sorry, but I can't say that the United States is a Christian nation. It would be great if it was. But when you look at our laws and you look at things that go on, um, you can't make the comparison, and people try to, between the United States and Israel. So understand back then, when somebody came into the tent, so to speak, 
It was making sure that they assimilated and not infiltrated. Okay, And what that means is that for them to come in to the worship system and integrate into the body of the Israelites, which many of them did, they had to leave their false gods, their idols, their demonic practices. They had to leave them behind because they were coming into a nation that was supposed to be worshiping the living God. Again, did that happen all the time? No, it didn't. But I'm trying to give you an understanding of what's going on here. The other thing that the concern was, was that when the uh, exodus happened from Babylon and they went back to Israel, that the eunuchs and the, uh, the foreigners and stuff, that when the Israelites got back home, that they wouldn't start changing their practices. So God was saying this to two people. Number one, those that traditionally looked at themselves as outcasts. God was saying, I have my seal on you. And he was also saying to his people, don't discriminate. Great lessons. And this is the beautiful thing about the scripture is he addresses everybody. You know, when we sit in the pews and we hear a message, you know, there's that type of of person that comes in the church that's always hearing the message for somebody else, their spouse, their kids. But when we listen to the word of God and we're, we're taught by it, we need to hear the message of the Bible for ourselves. If I'm doing it right, when I go to teach, I see things in here that bother me about me, not about, you know, Jane and Bob. And, uh, you know, so personally, I just say to the Lord, you know, I fail in this area. So you, you got to look at everything as a whole. But God is also dressing, addressing the feelings. Sometimes we have feelings about things, but our feelings deceive us. Don't let the eunuch say this because it's not true. Oh, I'm a dry tree. You know, I'm good for nothing. God doesn't care about me. God's saying, I'm telling you right through my word, through my prophet, that I've accepted you, that you're, you're part of my own. You're one of my children. The same thing to the foreigner. Don't say that because it's not true. Now, again, God had to work on the leadership of his people to do the right thing. But, you know, he, this was a big tent. And what really is neat about this is, God was always looking forward, and I said this in my opening, to the big picture of the new covenant with Jesus. God kept preparing his people centuries after centuries. Something's coming, and when the Messiah comes, you guys are going to break bread together. You're going to be arm in arm together. You're not going to be checking each other's ethnicities, and that's the way it should be. You guys are going to be monolithic, um, and that's the way the church is supposed to be. So there's a lot of lessons in here. You know, I've, I've heard stories, I've never experienced it myself, where some people have gone to some churches and it's, it's almost like a closed social club. And new people, you know, you're, you're not really welcome. But that's not what a church is supposed to be. Hopefully, the person who comes in here who's new, they feel welcome. They feel like they can be a part of Calvary Chapel Crossfields. So I know I'm, I'm scattering this all over the place. I'm in the 7th century BC. I'm in the 1st century. I'm in 2018. But what we have to do is take, listen, it's great if I could teach you a history lesson. But what's more important is if we take the lesson to ourselves and take it home and apply it. You know, I really do try my best. If I see somebody new and I'm talking to somebody in the hallway, I'm like, just give me a second. That person, I've never seen them before. And I try to reach out. I don't always get a chance to, but I do try. I want them to feel welcome. So um, God's addressing this in the Old Testament. He's also addressing it in the New Testament. Uh, but God also wasn't going to allow his people to be swallowed up in their, in, in, in their feelings. God's saying, don't, don't say that. Don't let that person say that. That's not true. And, and unfortunately, in our culture, we're becoming uh, 
run in a lot of ways by feelings oriented, whether it's the media or academia or the political class. Uh, if you scream loud enough, you must have a valid point. We've lost the art of debate in this country. But you know what? God's not going to be manipulated. He's going to say, this is the way it is. And, and just like children, you guys can throw your tantrums, but let's go back to what I'm saying. And that's got to be the playbook that we all go by is God's word. So there's a lot in here. Verse 5, on the other hand, again, he's saying to the Israelites, um, don't discriminate. Don't have an us versus them attitude. So great, you were born from uh, one of the 12 tribes. Wonderful. This guy comes from Moab, but he's worshiping me. I mean, this is, I'm paraphrasing for God. He's your brother. And the really neat thing is there were Gentiles in the line of the Messiah. So you talk about God sending a message, you know, oh, purity, bloodline. People do that today. Who cares? I had my DNA tested. I'm from everywhere, you know what I'm saying? Everybody's getting their DNA tested now. I mean, who's really a monolithic anything anymore? We have to start kind of shedding that and looking especially as at the church as a place where everybody can come in and worship the Lord. So the Israelites don't have an us versus them attitude. To the traditional outcast, hold your head up, I see you as mine. God's speaking here, okay? Um, verse 5, a place and a name. I will give you a place and a name. I'm going to say it backwards only because this is normally how I would ask the question, right? A place and a name. What does that mean? In other words, and, and people ask this today, who am I? And where do I belong? Who am I and where do I belong? Again, I, I had my DNA tested as a goof, as fun, um, and I had an idea of you know, the mixtures that, that I am. But what's more important to me is that I'm a child of God. You see what I'm saying? If I watch the media, they love to divide us on demographics and race and ethnicity. To me, I don't see that about myself. I see I'm a child of God first. I'm a pastor. I'm a husband, I'm a father. All that other stuff to me is down on the bottom, and that's where it should be. Don't let what you see on the news and in the culture twist your minds to get into these categories. That's not supposed to be in the church. In Revelation, it says that people will be there from every tribe, nation, kindred, and tongue. You see what I'm saying? We're all basically from the the same family, if you think about it. So the questions that people ask, who am I, and two, where do I belong? Well, God says, I'll give you a name, and I'll give you a place. We have a whole culture that's struggling with identity, you know, and people are even confused about what gender they are. And I'm not making fun of them. Actually, I read somewhere that supposedly now there's 36 genders. I don't know. I must have been asleep the last 10 years. I don't know when that happened, but I, I, I checked the boxes. I'm like, I, I don't see myself anywhere on here. You know, I know, these words are confusing. But, and again, I don't make fun of the person who's struggling, but I make fun of our culture because it's confusing. If I was an 8-year-old or a 12-year-old or a 16-year-old growing up in this culture, I'd be confused. That's why we have to go back to who we are, folks. Everybody sitting here, we should be in Christ first. We're in the family of God. Where do I belong? Well, the Bible tells us that while I'm on earth, I belong with my family, with other believers. Okay? But in the end, I belong in eternity with the living God and with my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's just the way it's going to play out. So a place and a name. And that's the beautiful thing for somebody coming in from this crazy culture and they come into church and they, they, they get grounded. So you're saying to me, pastor, that all this other extraneous characteristics, it doesn't mean anything. What's most important is that God has put a seal on me and he loves me, died for my sins. And if I believe in what Christ did on the cross, I'm immediately brought into the family of God. And my answer to you would be yes. Yes. Where do we belong? He says in verse nine or in verse five, 
that uh, I will give him an everlasting name that shall never be cut off. He says, better than that of sons and daughters. Again, bloodline, or some of the eunuchs, based on some sad practices of, it wasn't the Israelites, but outside they practiced castration. They couldn't have sons and daughters. Um, so if they wandered into the family of Israel, God was basically saying that you have an everlasting name, you're in my family, these people, your brothers and sisters and spiritual children, I will give you what the world took away, but I'll give it to you in a different way. So there was something for everybody here. Verse 6 through 8. Now, this is where things get interesting because the Bible talks about, and again, uh, I will bring them to my holy mountain. My house will be a house of prayer. The Sabbath will be observed, and there will be sacrifices that I will accept from these people who consider themselves or traditionally were understood as outcasts. Um, it's funny because, because the when Jesus was around in the first century, he quoted this because you had the temple and you had the courts dividing people again. The court of the Gentiles was on the furthest fringes, and it's believed that the money changers would go into the court if they'd invade the court of the Gentiles. Now, these are, this is the religious people, by the way, and they would rip people off, right, the money changers. And Jesus came in, and he, he just flipped the tables over, and he didn't care. He was irate, but it, he didn't sin because what they were doing, they was taking God's house. Jesus said, my house, God's house is supposed to be a, a, a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. You religious people, you're doing a horrible job representing God. And that's, an also, that's also a confusion in our culture. When you go into a church and they're talking about politics and they're talking about humanism and, and all this kind of stuff, and they're not reading the Bible. They're not telling the congregation, what is, of course, you're going to leave church, you're going to turn on the TV. The whole, the whole existence is confusion if you don't have a, a, a rod or a, a standard or a north star spiritually to, to ground us that we can continue to follow through this journey of life. So all these things in the Old Testament, uh, basically God said, and probably in their journey back from uh, the Babylonian exodus back to Jerusalem, back to Israel, that, you know, as long as you follow these things, remember, in the Old Testament, getting close to God was different than the New Testament, different dispensation. How does God deal with his people in each different era of time, okay? So in the Old Testament, you, you know, you had to do the sacrifices. You, you, you really had to keep the Sabbath. You had to do all these things. In the New Testament, just trusting in Christ, Christ did all the work. Now, here's the interesting thing is Hebrews tells us that Jesus, you know, you hear the Sabbath, the Sabbath, the Sabbath. What's the Sabbath? And in the first century, the religious leaders made it confusing. Uh, today, some groups make it even more confusing. And it's almost this fear of the Sabbath. It becomes this Leviathan, um, spiritually speaking. But all it was was God said, you know, the Lord created and did things in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. So I want the same for you. And the truth is, if you look at studies, when we burn the candle at both ends and we're going seven days a week, right, what happens? We burn out. Our immune system drops. We're more susceptible to infection and different things. Um, so the Sabbath was something in the Old Testament. It was really germane to the Israelites. They were supposed to rest on the seventh day. And, and of course, if you're resting and you're not doing all this work, you're also considering God. You're worshiping God. So it's really a neat thing. Now, in the New Testament, in Acts 15, 
right, the Jerusalem Council, there was no hard provisions on Gentiles or even Jews becoming Christians when it came to the Sabbath because it was a new dispensation. And the Bible says that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. What does that mean? So even when the Israelites would work and and do the sacrifices and all these things, um, when Jesus came, he offered himself for the sins of mankind. So in a sense, Jesus becomes our Sabbath rest. He worked so that we could be saved so we rest because he did all the work, the finished work on the cross. So some of these things, they just kind of flow into each other. You see the Old Testament and you see the fulfillment in the New Testament. So pretty neat stuff here. Verse 8, the outcasts and the others to be gathered. Again, God speaking about his, his family of God being a big tent. We say this in the New Testament, the church should be a big tent. Somebody wants to come in and they're seeking and they want to know how to worship God, we, need, we should be, and we should joyfully welcome them into our family of God because God set the tone for that. Um, and you see the genius in this is that what God does is, in a sense, is he almost, as you look at the reasoning, some other versions are a little bit more of a paraphrase. It's, it's sometimes easier to go through than the exact Hebrew to English translation But the genius in God, and God is genius, I mean, (laughs) who could do all this stuff? But um, it's amazing, even in in its fallen state. But the genius in in this is that he shows the Israelites that, you know, when you were in Babylonia, you were outcasts. So when everybody goes back home, keep that in mind. Don't treat them like they're outcasts. I want you to welcome them in. Pretty neat, huh? It's almost like this walking a mile in another person's shoes. And sometimes we can't understand others until we try to walk in their shoes. Do we try to understand people, right? So God was telling his people, don't treat them any differently than you would treat each other. Um, And again, trials help to refine us. Folks, a personal application here is, in my life, more when I was younger, I could say that if you've lived long enough, everybody here in this room has experienced rejection. Right? Once in your life, as a kid in high school, you know what I'm saying? Um, even as adults, sometimes we, we, we feel rejected. Sometimes we feel rejected by our own bi- biological family. So we should really work harder as Christians to not allow anybody else to feel rejected. That is so, so important. I've been to a few churches, and you know, I've seen a situation where a person comes in off the street, and somebody who's a church person, they forget the grace that they received, and right away they're picking at that person. Their manner of dress, their mannerisms, their language. It's like, just chill out. The, guy, the person just got here. Give them a, you know, are we willing to pick people apart? Because anybody can be a critic. It really doesn't take much to be a critic. But to actually put your arm around somebody and get to know them, and even if they're difficult, you know, to to work with them, to get them where they need to be. I'll speak for myself. When I became a Christian or when I started going to church, I was difficult. I'm probably still difficult. (laughs) But the point is that there were men of God that were willing to take me. I was a young man, and I thought I knew everything, and I didn't, and I still don't. But they were able to take on me, and I was a hard case. So, you know, I, I love the, the, the maxims in the scripture about 
walking a mile in somebody else's shoes, about trying to consider somebody else, you know, reaching across the aisle, going the extra mile. It's all good stuff, and it's all in the Scripture. Verse 9, continuing on, this is a little bit retrospective. So the, the title of the message is Be a Good Witness. This is kind of some of the reason, or a lot of the reason, why the Israelites were in trouble. And this had to do with, there was secular leadership, but really more spiritual leadership. The last few verses, it says, all you beasts of the field, come devour. Remember, metaphors. All you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They're all ignorant. They're all dumb dogs. They cannot bark. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yes, they are greedy dogs, which never have enough. And they are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, everyone for his own gain from his own territory. Come, one says, I will bring wine and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. So the last three out of three is this is really the rebuke of the blind leaders of Israel that got the nation into this horrible situation. We're going to look at a few metaphors for these not good leaders. And honestly, if you, look, if you think about it, they're all oxymorons. The first one is a blind watchman. A watchman's supposed to watch. So he says, you're spiritually blind. You, you don't see. The second one is a dumb dog, right? That's funny. <laughs> dog lovers? Well, that wasn't supposed to come up yet. <laughs> We'll get to that. The third one is the selfish shepherd. Shepherd, a shepherd's life is sacrificial. And the fourth one is a drunk leader. How can a leader really do his or her performances if they're inebriated? So let's look at this. Number one is a blind and ignorant watchman. What God is saying metaphorically is he's not happy about this, but because the watchmen were blind, that the beasts of the field were coming and invading the borders of Israel. And really worse than people invading, which you can see an army coming, was bad doctrine, idolatry, demonic practices, because the watchmen, the spiritual leaders, weren't paying attention, or they were just completely selfish. And what happened was this stuff infiltrated God's people, and then it caused them to be harmed physically. So it has started spiritually. And, and folks, when we're off spiritually, it affects us emotionally, and it can affect us physically. So keep that in mind. As believers, spirituality should be before the other two. So in a spiritual sense, again, they were not testing the spirits like the Bible said. They were just letting anything come into Israel. Kind of reminds me of, I don't know, some politicians. Like they'll just allow anything at at this point in this state as long as there's money associated with it. But you know, it's going to help the taxpayer. I got to tell you something. I'm against gambling. I think, well, I don't think, anywhere gambling has gone in, in a few years, it, it ruins that town through prostitution, through kids left outside in cars being neglected because the parents are addicted to gambling. Gambling, you know, people's life savings, I just kind of threw that out there. I, I just am so against gambling. But the politicians will tell you, no, this is good, it brings revenue. But the social cost is the hidden demon underneath it that you don't see and what it does to families, and then the taxing that it has to do on the taxpayer because we have to help these people, right? We've got to help their families, the ones that have been abandoned by the, the gambling parent, et cetera. So, you know, you don't see the infiltration. God's saying as leaders, you're supposed to be paying attention. I set you up 
to protect my people and you're not doing it. So it's funny because Jesus said to the spiritual leaders of his day, he said a few things. He said, number one, you're blind guides. You're supposed to be guiding people, but you're blind. That's another oxymoron, a blind guide. He said to the religious leaders, you're like the blind leading the blind. The people who are looking for something spiritual, they're blind. They don't know. But you pretend that you see, but you're really blind because you're hypocritical. He goes, both of you will fall into the pit. So Jesus picks up a lot of these things in the New Testament. So after the blind and the ignorant watchmen were B, the dumb and greedy dogs. Now, dogs have been used since the beginning of time, uh, even for nomadic peoples, is to be part of their, their, their group and to, be, to bark when there's danger. They're supposed to be guard dogs. So if you have a, a dog that you want to protect you, you want a guard dog, you don't want this. I don't know if you can see, but she's, she gets up on the bed. This is, for those of you listening, this is one of my dogs. She gets up on the bed. Look, the pillow's over her head, right? She's nestled into the, you can show the next one too. <laughs> Who do you think's the boss out of those three? There you go. Well, you guys are sharp. <laughs> so a little humor, right? You want a guard dog to, to bark, to bite, to, to protect you from impending danger. And these spiritual leaders weren't doing it. But you know what he did say? He goes, you're also greedy dogs. Now, folks, there's a lot of ministries out there, ministries in New Jersey or a dime or dozen. There's a, a direct relationship with those at the top. And I, I, I usually say guys, but some of them are gals leading ministries or a small group that the richer they get, the more lavish their lifestyle, there's a direct relation with them being soft on the word. See here, sometimes we offend people. Sometimes I offend myself. But the bottom line is when you go through the scripture, it's going to happen sometimes because God wants, he wants to mold us. He wants to shape our character. So the greedy dogs are the ones who, well, they won't bark, but they'll certainly take care of themselves. They'll certainly have a stash for themselves and they'll leave the, the people. You know, you, you do when you have a ministry where you just want, it's all about money. You got to make everybody happy. Well, you can't make everybody happy if you're telling the truth from the scripture. So a lot of ministries today are, they're greedy dogs. They just go soft on everything and it makes our job harder because, you know, the flesh gravitates towards something easier. The, the flesh gravitates towards flattery versus rebuke. C, the selfish shepherds. Now, shepherds, that's, that's an oxymoron because a shepherd's life is sacrificial. Jesus spoke about this all over the scripture. He spoke about the false hirelings versus the person who's a true shepherd. He's the good shepherd, right? Uh, the Bible speaks about false shepherds in the scripture. John chapter 10, we see that. And, you know, when you're in ministry, you're dealing with people and you're dealing with yourself and stuff goes wrong. So when you're a shepherd, you're a pastor, you listen, there's a part of it. People say, oh, you know, they, they look, they see what goes on up here. This is just a small part of what we do during the week. You minister to hurting people, funerals come up. I mean, your plans get changed. Um, people don't realize that if you're doing it right, you know, some churches, they don't have man- marriage ministry. They don't have counseling ministry. They don't do weddings. They don't do funerals. What do you do? It's just a big show. If you're really doing it right, being a shepherd is sacrificial. Jesus is the ultimate shepherd, but we try to model that as leaders as best we can. It's not always easy, but their shepherds didn't. And last one is drunk leaders. 
Their only concern is getting drunk and partying. They have a whimsical notion that tomorrow will be the same as today. You know what that is, folks? That's called humanism. There's humanism that has crept its way into ministries. You know, this happened in Jesus' day, that the Sadducees, they didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the miraculous works of God. Well, how are you a religious leader if you don't believe in miracles? That makes no sense at all. Look at creation. Look at your body. It's three weeks. My hand's all healed up now. Last, last time I was, it was funny on the video, I had dark clothing and I had a white bandage and I, I use my hands a lot. And it looks like I'm waving a flag, you know what I'm saying? But now the, the skin is healed up and, and the tendon and everything, and it's just amazing. The human body is, is, is a miracle in itself, even in its fallen state. Think about that one. But the drunk leaders, they're humanists. Uh, they're, they're inebriated spiritually, make bad decisions. Uh, think about Belshazzar, King Belshazzar of the Babylonians, right? Speaking of the Babylonians and the Persians, the Persians were sneaking up at the gate. The army was, was trying to get under the building. They were trying to find a, a breach. And what was the, the king doing? Let's throw a party. Everybody get drunk. Well, you know, we're impregnable. Well, they weren't. Persians get in and they don't even have to fight very hard because everybody's wasted. You see what I'm saying? So this is the, the leadership in a physical sense, but you can also see that in a spiritual sense. Um, today, humanism, Unitarianism basically says everybody's opinion is valid when it comes to spiritual things. Try that with engineering. See how far you get. It's not going to work. Man is eternal. But you know what that does? And you, you, there's ministries you might go to and they might say, oh, they teach you about the rapture in that church? They teach you that the Lord's going to return? Yeah, we do because we believe what the Bible says. God's already interrupted human history many times, and one of the biggest times was with sending his son into this world. All the miracles, even Josephus and Tacitus and the Roman historians, they all talk about this amazing person, even though they weren't believers in the miracles he did. So God's already interrupted. It's like he's opened up the space-time continuum, and he, he came down to earth. He's going to do it again. So why wouldn't I believe that? Why wouldn't I teach it? But the humanistic teaching in the church teaches that don't worry about it. Just like they say right here, tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. Wishful thinking. The, the greatest organization of man, the United Nations, right, of man, so take it for what it's worth. What problems are they solving? Tell me. How many wars are there? I've, I've done a study on it. I've told you how many battles right now as we speak are going on. How many genocides? How many people are being murdered? What's the UN doing? They're increasing their coffers, I can tell you that. We can't solve our own problems, folks. I look forward to when the Lord comes and interrupts. I'm stepping back. I can't wait to see it. Interrupts human history again and does this thing. Remaking of the heavens and the earth, deposing wicked kings and, and, and leaders and stuff. I'm all for that. But the humanists will teach you, no, nah, don't worry about that. We're going to be fine. Every day is going to be like the last day. Folks, the sermon title is Be a Good Witness. Yes, it was for the Israelites. Yes, it was for the leaders. But yes, if we call ourselves Christians, it's for us as well. You know, we can't come to church and, and fancy ourselves with a nice story about history, feel good, go out and just do what we do every day. Are we a good witness? Do we represent God well? Could we do a better job? Every time I ask that question to you, I ask it to myself, and the answer is yes, I can do a better job. Are we more influenced by TV and the things we hear and see on social media than we are in God's word? 
That's how these ministries can survive. Because just like our country, I believe, is being dumbed down when it comes to history, in the churches, that same spirit is, is dumbing down the church. What? Well, I never even knew that that was a book in the Bible, you know? Uh, or I never heard that before. Are we reading our scripture? So there is something we can do to better ourselves, and that's getting closer to God. In the Old Testament, they were profaning the Sabbath. They weren't resting. They weren't doing the right thing. They were drifting from God. But we can do the same thing today, folks. And the closer we get to God, there's a, a direct relationship with that we, we do become a better witness. Is there a difference between us and our unsaved neighbors? That was a question to ask the Israelites. But that's also a question to ask myself. Right? So, if we have gotten a little conviction this morning, do we give up? No. We take encouragement from God's word. I never read anywhere in scripture where God says, you know what, I'm fed up with all of you. I've had it with you. I'm not speaking to you anymore. I don't care what happens to you. I've read Genesis 1-1 to Revelation all the way to 22. And I never read about, about God forsaking his people. Never. And he won't do that with us either. He always, sometimes it stings a little, but he always comes back to us and says, you know what, you can do better and I can help you to do better. So with that, we can always turn to God. We can always take encouragement from his word. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.